Please rise for the reading of God's word. This morning I'll be reading Mark 5, uh, 1 through 20. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of grace and this, sorry. <laughs> and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anywhere, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue, subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you done with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. And he begged him earnestly not to send, him, <clears throat> send them out of the country. Now a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. And they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. So he gave them permission. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country, and people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion sitting there clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. As he was getting into the boat, the man who had possessed with the demons begged him that he might be with him. And he did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to know your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And then he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus has done for him, and everyone marveled. This is God's word. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to keep them open to Mark chapter 5 as we open with a word of prayer. Father, as we come again to the book of Mark this morning, encounter a passage that reveals the strength, the might, and the authority of your Son, we pray that you would help us to see it clearly, to trust Him more completely. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work in our midst this morning that you would give us eyes to see your face and your glory and ears to hear your voice, and that as you draw us close to you, we would respond to you with joy. We pray these things together this morning in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. Well, have you ever watched one of those World's Strongest Man competitions on TV? If you never have, I'll explain. The premise is simple. There's a series of competitions, challenges, to determine which of the competitors is the strongest. Very simple premise, but the execution of that premise is absolutely wild. The actual challenges that are involved involve, uh, include things like who can carry a boulder the furthest, who can throw a bar of gold the highest, and who can tow a jumbo jet the furthest down a runway. At the end of the day, someone is crowned the strongest man in the whole world. And even though I'm certain that there are more scientific ways of determining who is the strongest, who cares about that when you can watch a guy from Iceland carry a refrigerator up a flight of stairs in like four seconds? Because people are fascinated 
captivated by feats of strength and displays of that strength. That's what this section of Mark's gospel that we are looking at right now is really all about. Mark has structured this section of his book in a way that highlights Jesus' power, his might, and his authority. We saw last week how out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus stunned his disciples when a ferocious storm threatened to sink their boat, and he stood up and commanded it to stop, and the storm actually listened to him and obeyed him. Afterward, the disciples muttered to themselves in fear, asking, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? Already they have seen him do amazing things. They understood that he had power beyond anything that they had seen before. But this was different somehow. Because throughout the Old Testament, it is God alone who exercises authority over the sea. So when he silenced a storm, Jesus did something that only God does. And now, as they arrive safely on the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is about to do something that is equally amazing. Mark tells us that as soon as they stepped off the boat, Immediately, Jesus was confronted by a man oppressed by demons, or as Mark describes him, a man with an unclean spirit. Now, there are a handful of passages in the Bible that deal with demons, but this is the longest and the most detailed of any of them. And it's important for us to pay close attention to what it has to say, even though in our day and age, most people scoff at the idea that demons or demonic influence is a real threat. Often, People will read passages like this one that we're looking at this morning, and they'll argue that in antiquity, when people didn't really have any clue about science or medicine or mental health, they just blamed demons for everything. So someone who suffered from seizures or someone who struggled with their mental health or had a chronic illness were just assumed to be afflicted by demonic power of some sort because people then just didn't really have a clue what was really going on. So people today, even if they have a positive view of the Bible itself and trust generally what the Bible has to say, even some Christians will say, you don't really believe in demons, do you? You don't really think that that's real like in the 21st century, do you? But there are a couple of reasons why I think we should take passages like Mark chapter 5 verses 1 through 20 very seriously. Why we should take spiritual powers like those that we see in this passage very seriously. The first is that people in the ancient world understood more than we give them credit for. We read in Matthew chapter 4 that as Jesus' reputation as a healer spread around the region, people brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those who were oppressed by demons, those having seizures, and paralytics, and he healed them. They understood that there is a difference between disease and illness and infirmity and being oppressed by a demonic force. Even if they sometimes saw a connection between those things, they did not just try to explain everything they didn't understand by blaming it on demons. So we should not oversimplify what people in antiquity believed in order to justify our own dismissal of something that we may struggle to take seriously. Secondly, though, our answer to the question, do you really believe in demons, should be that Jesus did. Jesus did not dismiss them as a folk tale or an oversimplified way of looking at the world and the suffering that characterizes it. 
He took them seriously. So it is at best unwise for us to write them off or scoff at the idea that they exist in the first place. Because as true as that is, as, or, or but rather, as true as that is, as, as true as it, it is unwise for us to scoff at the idea that they exist, it is equally dangerous for us to see them everywhere. For every Christian, I think, who tends to think that demons are not a real threat, there is another Christian, one pew over, so look to your left and your right, there's another Christian, one pew over, who thinks that they are lurking in every dark corner and that they are responsible for everything that goes wrong. This is equally irresponsible. Last year, at the recommendation of one of our elders here at Westgate, Ryan, I read a book called The Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. If you've never heard of this book before, it describes the imaginary correspondence from a senior demon named Screwtape to his nephew, whose name is Wormwood. It's a fascinating way to think about how demons try to influence the world and draw people away from God, but one of the very most helpful parts of the book comes in the preface, which, by the way, is why you should always read the preface and the introduction of the books that you read. Lewis says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. We should neither dismiss them as irrelevant folk spirituality or obsess over their power. Because, as we see in this passage, they are both real and frightening, but also powerless to wage their war against one who belongs to Jesus Christ. Mark tells us that the man that we meet in Mark 5, the man with the unclean spirit, lived in a graveyard on the edge of a town, and that he was so disturbed he had either been cast out by the townspeople or chose the graveyard himself or both. And now he lives alone, though he is never alone, and literally everyone is afraid of him. They were afraid because their attempts to restrain him failed. Mark tells us that they used to be able to bind him with chains, but something about the demonic power that is at work in him has given him remarkable strength, and now he simply breaks the chains and shackles to pieces. And we read in verse 4 that no one had the strength to subdue him. Everything that they've tried has failed, and everything that he has tried has failed too, He has retreated to the graveyard, the wilderness, where he lives a waking nightmare. And he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones, we read in verse 5, either as a part of his misery or as an attempt to end it. Mark writes in this passage with vivid detail. It's clear that this experience made a lasting impact on Peter, who is the source for Mark's gospel. Peter remembers everything. He remembers how afraid he was seeing this man come out of a graveyard, ranting and raving, wearing rags and covered in bloody wounds. That memory has seared itself on Peter's memory. But Jesus, we see, is not afraid. Just like the night before, Jesus is not dismayed. He is calm in the face of what makes others afraid, though. In fact, 
we can take the observations we made about the passage that we looked at last week, the end of chapter 4, and see them repeated here in this passage. As Jesus calmed a stormy sea, we see that he is sovereign over all things, even when others would have done it differently. He is the source of all peace, and he is the king who rules with divine authority. As the man afflicted by demons approaches Jesus, the same aspects of Jesus' identity and mission are put on display for us. The man sees Jesus coming, running toward him, and then the man kneels down in front of him and asks, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you, in the name of God, do not torment me. He knows who Jesus is. He correctly identifies him as the son of the Most High God. He's like a bully who's enjoyed picking on all the kids in his class who are smaller than he is, knowing that none of them are strong enough to stand up to him. But when someone even bigger comes along, he knows it. When the demonic power at work in this man saw that Jesus had come, he understood the threat that Jesus represented. And that is saying something. Because when Jesus asks for his name... He replies, my name is Legion, for we are many. Legion was a military division of between five and 6,000 soldiers. So there is an incredible force of pure evil that is tormenting this man. It's described using military terminology. They are ready for battle. But as soon as Jesus comes, everything changes This demonic force begs Jesus for mercy, not to be sent out of the country, but instead to be sent into a herd of pigs that was grazing nearby. Two times they plead with Jesus because they know they're not strong enough to make Jesus submit to them. So Jesus sends them into the pigs, the man is set free, and the pigs rush into the sea. For what it's worth, nobody knows what's going on with the pigs here. There is no consensus among scholars about what this means, why things happen this way, what it maybe represents. What is clear, though, is the response of the townspeople when they arrive. They've heard this, the frantic report of the herdsmen who rushed back to town to say, you'd never believe what we just saw, and the pigs, they're gone. The townspeople arrive, this crowd arrives. They see the man that they had rejected, the one that they had cast out. And he's sitting there, we read in verse 15, clothed and in his right mind. It's a miracle. But they are not glad. There are no chains holding this man. He isn't crying out, cutting himself with stones. No one is running away from him, afraid. He's sitting there, clothed and in his right mind. But this is not good news for them. In fact, The fact that this man's life has been saved seems irrelevant to them. What they know for sure is that someone in this town has just lost a fortune since 2,000 pigs were just lost at sea, and that is more significant news to them than the fact that this man's life has just been saved. Just like the disciples were afraid after seeing Jesus command the obedience of a storm at sea, this crowd is afraid of the power that has come to visit their town. And for the second time in this passage, someone begs something from Jesus. They want him to leave. They think that he is a threat. 
they remember what it was like trying to restrain this madman who is now sitting on the beach. They remember trying to bind him with chains and iron shackles. They remember how strong he was when he broke those shackles into pieces. And now, someone's here who's even stronger than that? They don't know Jesus. They don't know how he'll use that strength. So they want him to get right back in his boat and leave town. Jesus doesn't argue with them. He doesn't demand to stay where he's been rejected. But that does not mean that he is rejecting these people. Even though they are rejecting him now, it does not mean that he is rejecting these people, as we will see. Because as he turns to get into the boat, the man who was freed from demonic oppression pleads to come along. It isn't hard for us to understand why he would want that, of course. Jesus has just given him his life back. And he figures the best way to remain free is to be as close to Jesus as possible. It's a good example of the sort of childlike faith that we sang about earlier. Faith that knows where there is true strength and in whom there is true safety. This is a grown man, but he knows that Jesus is his protector because he has seen the power and the kindness that characterize Jesus. So he wants to join the other disciples and become a part of Jesus' entourage to follow him, learn from him, and continue to witness amazing things like the sort of thing that he himself has experienced. Ironically, though, even though Jesus granted the wishes of both the crowd who had rejected him and the legion of demons who was dead set against him, he says no to this new and eager believer. Now, there's something important for us to notice here, a quick aside about this. And it is that Jesus' love for his people is not proved by whether or not he answers our prayers in the ways that we hope. When we pour out our hearts before God, pleading with him to move, to change something, to grant relief from something, or to affect an outcome, we will be tempted to measure his love for us on how he answers that prayer. We will be tempted when he says no, to think that he does not love us well, or maybe at all. But that is not what scripture tells us. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus himself prayed and asked if there were any other way. And his father said, no. It is not because the father's love for the son is small. It's because his love for you is beyond measuring. Jesus loves this man standing on the beach. That much is beyond doubt. The man who is begging to go with him back to Galilee. We don't have to wonder about how Jesus feels about this man. But his love for that man's family is too great for him to say yes. So he sends him back home to tell everyone there about the mercy of God. It's a deliberate, strategic move on Jesus' part because he knows that he will be back and that this man will pave the way for fruitful ministry in that region. We get to see it pay off. In chapter 7, in Mark chapter 7, Jesus returns to this side of the sea And the people's response to him is very different than it is here in chapter 5. People eagerly welcome him and they bring him their friends who need healing. So it is not a lack of love that moves Jesus to say no to this man when he said yes to demons and to a crowd that had rejected him. 
It is that his love is greater than anyone on the beach could possibly have foreseen. Last week's passage, when Jesus calmed a storm at sea, illustrates Jesus' strength. It demonstrates that Jesus is sovereign and the source of peace and the king who rules with divine authority. But this passage adds nuance to each of those points by showing us that Jesus uses that power in compassion and love, even for those who have been rejected by everyone else. Specifically, it helps us to see the extent of Jesus' authority, the aim of his ministry, and the scope of its impact. The first and most obvious to really everyone standing there on the beach that day is the extent of Jesus' authority. Really, it's that he has all authority. At multiple points in this story, Jesus is begged to do something because he cannot be made to do anything. No one compels Jesus to conform to their will. The demons beg, the crowd begs, and the man who has just been healed begs. They all acknowledge an unspoken but very well understood reality that Jesus' authority is absolute. But it is Jesus' interaction with the demons that really makes this point for us. We don't know how long that they had afflicted this man, but there's a sense that it was quite a long time based on the fact that the people used to be able to bind him, so there's a history there. Mark tells us that he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but now no one could bind him anymore. Over time, as this man descended further and further and further into the madness of his affliction, the townspeople's attempts to deal with the situation began to fail. And when they tied him up, he would snap the ropes. When they used chains, he would pull them apart. When they used shackles, he would break them into pieces. And now in verse 4, it says that no one had the strength to subdue him. They have tried everything, all of their power, and nothing works. But Jesus is able to do what no one else can. Rather than subduing this man, Jesus sets him free. Rather than trying to restrain this demonic force, he commands him to leave. Just as he dismissed a violent storm with a word of his own power, now he sends a legion of demons out with a similar word of power. What's interesting is that there are countless examples of exorcism in literature and historical documents from antiquity. Not just in Judaism, but across the spectrum of spirituality, there are examples that are plentiful of people trying to cast out demons cast them out of the lives of those who are afflicted. But scholars have noted that it is only Jesus, only Jesus who does so without appealing to some higher authority. He does not say, in the name of God, come out of this man. Ironically, that is what the demon attempts to do in this passage. He tries to take control by invoking the name of God. He says, I adjure you by God, Do not torment me. Jesus does not call in the name of God. He does not act on behalf of anyone else. He has divine authority because he is divinity incarnate. Often in pop culture, we get this idea that God and Satan are locked in some battle, some struggle of good against evil. Satan is scheming, God is scheming, are each trying to outmaneuver one another, trying to prove who is stronger and who will emerge victorious. That's not what we see here. 
This is a legion of demons, thousands strong. He doesn't argue with Jesus. There is no epic battle. This man, afflicted by demons, falls down before Jesus, and they beg for mercy. And then they must be given permission to go and run into a herd of pigs and run those pigs into the sea. At no point is this a fair fight. In no way do these demons represent a threat to Jesus. He knew that no power, no matter how many legions worth of it, could threaten his divine authority. The man knew that too. That's why he wanted to get in the boat with Jesus. He knew that there was safety in being close to Jesus, and he was right. More right than he really understood at the time, because even from across the sea, and even from his seat at God's right hand, Jesus was his protector. So all of God's people can look to Jesus with the same hope that this man had, because we belong to him. We know that we need not fear the powers of this world. That's the point that Jesus made in Matthew 10 when he said, Do not fear those who can only kill the body, but not kill the soul. The powers of this world, they can inflict harm. That much is certain. But we belong to Christ, and his power is greater. Just like the storm that threatened to sink the ship on the Sea of Galilee in Mark 4, it was certainly a frightening situation, and one that could have easily taken the lives of the disciples. But Jesus' power is greater, and they are right to regard his might and power more than the storm that threatened their lives. Just as he proved his authority over creation on the sea, now he proves his authority over the spiritual realm on on the shore. Because there is no place where the rule of Jesus is not absolute. It's true on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's true in your home, in your office, in your bank account, in your kid's classroom, and even in your own mind. So even if we are tossed by stormy seas, afflicted by the powers of this world, and hard-pressed on all sides, there is safety in the compassion and absolute strength and authority of Jesus Christ. Secondly, this passage helps us see that Jesus' war is against evil itself. When the disciples asked with wonder, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him, they were afraid of him. They had a new and clearer understanding that Jesus was far more powerful than they had realized before. And like the crowd on the beach, they wonder what Jesus is going to do with all that power. For a long time, the Jewish people had put their hope in a Savior who would come and deliver them from the greatest evil that they could imagine, which was Rome. Rome represented injustice and oppression and the height of all wickedness. And they knew that God was sending a rescuer to deliver his people. And so they figured that this rescuer, this divine deliverer, would come and overthrow the government and set God's people free from Roman oppression. But when Jesus sailed across the sea into a region that was not Jewish and did not have those expectations of the the deliverer that God would send, and he cast a legion of demons out of a Gentile man, Jesus made a point about his identity and his mission. And it is that he has come to conquer evil itself, to rip it out, root and stem. Here in Mark 5, it is personified for us as this plurality of demons that goes by the name legion. But Jesus' war is against all that he represents. 
There are clues in this passage that Jesus' sights are set on something that is much bigger than Rome. There are subtle references to another time in the history of God's people when he set them free from oppression, when he crushed their captors in the sea and delivered them to freedom, when God's victory over Egypt on behalf of the people was decisive and overwhelming. Here in Mark 5, it isn't Rome who's being crushed by the sea like Pharaoh and his army were. It's a different oppressor, one who shackles the mind and the heart. Jesus' mission is to crush him and to deliver his people to freedom forever. Here he initiates that campaign, but it will not be until the end of his ministry when he strikes the final blow, when he lays down his strength and his might and gives his life for people like the man on the beach. He bears the burden of God's righteous judgment against sin, and as he does, his people are set free from condemnation and shame. Though we are sinners and deserving of judgment, we are counted righteous and justified in God's sight. So Satan has no claim, none, no rights to anyone who is found in Christ. Jesus is at war with evil itself, and his victory is one that stands for all time. So he is the rescuer that we need, because like the man who is living among the tombs along the edge of the Sea of Galilee, all of our efforts to set ourselves free from the works of evil in this world will fail. But he is able to do what no one else can. When we watch a competition on TV to determine who is the world's strongest man, we do see some truly impressive feats of strength. But at the end of the day, it's just spectacle. It's amazing to see someone lift a boulder or carry a car, but what difference does it make? At the end of the competition, someone is given a trophy, and the world knows that this guy can do what nobody else can, but it's just entertainment. Not a single person on the shore here in Mark 5 thinks that what they're seeing is just entertainment. Jesus' strength makes a difference. He uses it to do what no one else can in his mission to seek to save the lost. And that's how this passage ends. When the man begs to come with Jesus and Jesus sends him back home to go and tell everyone there about God's mercy. It's the first missionary journey to the Gentile world. Long before Peter heard Jesus' call to share the gospel with a Roman military leader, or the apostle Paul's commission to become God's envoy to the Gentiles, this man in Mark 5 is sent to tell people throughout the region about Jesus. Because Jesus' victory, his defeat of evil, is for all people. At the time, that was a revolutionary concept. But Jesus knew that people come into his kingdom by grace through faith, not through a bloodline. That their citizenship, is in hev- their, their citizenship in heaven is dependent not on their citizenship here on earth, but on Jesus Christ. So he sends this man to go and spread the word. Reading that, I think if I were in that man's shoes, I would have been intimidated. This guy has known Jesus for one day, and now he's supposed to go and evangelize whole towns. But evidently he was successful. Verse 20 tells us that the people marveled. And by chapter 7, these people will be eager to meet Jesus for themselves. This man did not know everything. He never went to seminary. 
He didn't even have a background in hearing the Scriptures read aloud in the synagogue. He probably could not answer most of the questions that people asked him, but he could tell them about being shown mercy and kindness from a man who had power to do what no one else could do. When he walked back into his hometown, the people there probably did a double take. Maybe he was married, had a family before all this had happened, and when he walked into his house, his wife probably felt like she had received her husband back from the grave because, in a way, she had. All those people knew what he had become. And yet, now, here he is, restored, healed. He didn't know everything, but he could still say, Jesus saves, and I am the proof. That's the call of every Christian. If you belong to him, If he is your king, if you have tasted the grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ, then you are the testimony to his power and his mercy. Because he is able to do what no one else can do. He breaks chains and shackles that no one else can break. He silences storms, casts out wicked powers, and will bring an end to evil itself. Mark wants us to see these passages side by side, the storm last week, the demon this week, and to wonder alongside the disciples about who this is, that even the wind and the waves obey him, to marvel at his power over forces that no one else can contend with, and then to see with joy that he will use this unimaginable, incomprehensible strength with compassion to set us free and to give us new life. Let's pray together. Father God, we praise you today with joyful hearts as we reflect on how loved we are. You sent your Son who reigns in power and might and who laid laid all that power aside and laid down his life for the sake of our salvation. We do not deserve such love, We have sinned and fallen short and rebelled against you. Yet, Jesus chose to use his immeasurable strength to set us free from sin and condemnation, to give us new life and to secure our place in your household. This gospel is the source of our strength. It makes our joy in you impervious to the powers of this world. So we ask that you would strengthen our trust in you today. And we we pray In the name of your Son.